0: From the Theology of the Body Institute, this is
1: the Ask Christopher West Podcast.
0: Welcome, everybody. Wherever you are tuning in, we're so happy to have you.
1: Yes, we are. I was just uh, gathering some questions from our uh, folder of questions, and I came across one that I just wanted to share with everybody because I thought it was beautiful.
0: It, so this is not a question I'm supposed it, to answer. It
1: has a tiny element of question, but the more point is just to share this beautiful testimony. Let's, okay. let's hear it. So this is from a patron named Kyle who said, hey, Kyle? Mm-hmm. Thank you for what you do. I recently went through your TOB introductory course, Head and Heart Immersion. Oh, great. And you mentioned a book you wrote that talked about the mass, specifically about the chalice, endosperm, and the ovary oh, of the grapes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you please tell me the title? I would love to dive deeper into that teaching. So before you answer that, okay. I'm going to read the rest of this, and then okay. you, can, you can, so all our all our listeners You know what? This works that.
0: really well to tie right into our update on the Institute right. as well. Right,
1: well. Hang, hang, hang. Okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. I'm so getting this is of... what else Kyle said. Okay. Christopher and Bill greatly impacted me in TOB1, which led to a profound encounter with Christ.
0: Christopher and, and Bill, as in, did he take the course with Bill Dunahy? Uh,
1: I think maybe. Oh, oh he probably you took the one
0: that we co-taught. it together. Got it.
1: As a result of the class... And this podcast, on September 12th, I will be reversing my vasectomy.
0: Glory to God.
1: Thank you from the bottom of my heart.
0: Kyle, wow. Wow. What a grace. What a, uh, man, I'm, I'm, wow, I'm like the Red Sea is parting. That's powerful. Uh, I hope this isn't too much of an image to share with everybody, but man, I feel it. And this is theology of the body. Uh, A vasectomy is a block in a man's body to the flowing of grace. That's what it is, because the flow of the life-giving element of the man's contribution to the marital embrace is a physical sign of the spiritual reality of God's life-giving grace. Brother, you are going to feel a floodgate open, a floodgate of grace flowing through your body. That is.
1: Awesome. That is awesome.
0: Wow. And here I can tie in the little question you had with an update of the Institute. We usually Mm -hmm. do. If you're a new listener, Wendy and I usually begin with just a little banter, we call it. And we just, we used for our banter today this beautiful comment. Mm -hmm. And then we have a little update on the work of the Institute. So here it is. Here's the question. What about this book? Yes. I just over the last two days recorded the audiobook version and... Saw in my hand the prototype print version of a book I've been working on now, man, for a couple years. Uh, in fact, I started writing it during lockdown in 2020. Right. Uh, so this has been a long pregnancy, shall we say, and it's <laughs> coming to birth. Uh, the book is, and it will be released sometime this fall. We have a website. Maybe by the time that this episode airs, it'll be active. The the website is also the title of the book, Eating the Sunrise. Eatingthesunrise.com. Go there, and it, hopefully it'll be up and running by the time you listen to this, and you can pre-order the book. Eating the Sunrise, the subtitle is Meditations on Liturgy and Our Hunger for Beauty. This has been a real—I mean, all of my books are a labor of love, but this one, man, this took me places. Mm. And the the idea, Eating the Sunrise, the title of the book, came from a student of mine. Maybe some of you, especially if you're a Spanish speaker, you might know the work of Evan Lemoyne. He's a, a TOB speaker in the Spanish world. He also speaks English, but he lives in Mexico and he, he does a lot of work uh, sharing theology of the body in Spanish-speaking countries. Anyway, he was a student of mine years ago, and he came up to me at a break one day and he said, Christopher... I don't only want to behold the beauty of the sunrise. We were talking about in class about just letting mm. the beauty of creation awaken yes. you. He said, I don't want to just behold the beauty of a sunrise. I want to eat it. And I was like, oh, oh, what an image. What a powerful image. That's what we want to take beauty into ourselves. We don't want to just look at it we want to take it in. I mean for crying out loud, what is the passionate kiss of lovers saying? What is that open mouth lip smack and tongue involved <laughs> face chewing <laughs> What is that? Come on, what is that? It, what are you saying with your body if not, at some level, I want to eat you. I want to take you in. Mm. And what I unfold in this book is that the ultimate fulfillment of that hunger to eat the sunrise, to eat beauty, well, that's exactly what the Mass is. That's exactly what the Eucharist is. We are, we are, why does the Church traditionally pray her liturgy towards the rising sun, ad orientum, towards the Orient? Uh, Because as Scripture says, The sun comes forth like a bridegroom from its tent. The whole purpose of liturgy, which I unfold at great length in this new book, is to orient the desire of the bride, that's the church, towards the coming of the bridegroom. And eating the sunrise is exactly the right image for what happens in the Mass. So um, go to eatingthesunrise.com. Hopefully it's up and running and you can pre-order that book. We'll keep you posted once once we get those books shipped to our our storage facility and they are available for purchase, but you can pre-order it. Go check it out.
1: Our first question then is from an anonymous patron who says, "Thank you Christopher and Wendy for your podcast ministry and for providing this virtual community where we can all find hope and inspiration through these mm. discussions." I have a situation which I fear is unfortunately common for many of us with adult children, so I think your answer to this question will serve many people. My daughter and her fiancé currently live in different cities and far from the places both were raised. They're engaged to be married in the spring of 2024. In October, both of their respective leases expire, and my daughter intends to move into her fiancé's city in preparation for their new life together And unfortunately, they intend to live together at that time. They view this as an economic and practical decision. Both of them grew up in faithful Catholic homes. And in my daughter's case, grew up attending Catholic school and daily Mass with me. As an adult, she's completely rejected the teachings of the Church, Mm. which, as you can imagine, is very painful to me. Mm. The irony is that they both want to be married in the Church, Mm. However, it's clear that desire is more about a pretty backdrop for their pictures and making their families happy. Mm. My daughter and I have an excellent relationship and speak on the phone daily, and they visit us often. Mm. When they stay in my home, they sleep in separate rooms. With no question, they fully understand our position on premarital sex and respect our rules. I'm fairly certain there's nothing I can say to change their minds about living together, even though I will, of course, try. My question is more along the lines of, what do I do once they've actually done it? My daughter will fully expect me to help her make the move, which I of course did when she moved away from our state to the place where she is now. I feel that it would be wrong of me to facilitate in any way her living with her fiancé, meaning I would have to refuse to help with the move or visit their home until they're married, which will be about six months later. Is this the right approach? We are very fond of her her fiancé and, of course, praying daily that they will both mature and return to the faith. What can I say to her or to him that would help them understand my refusal to help isn't being punitive, but I just don't want to participate in a morally wrong decision?
0: Dear anonymous questioner, I'm not sure if you're the mom or the dad, but I just want to bless you in that place of real pain and sorrow and to encourage you that that pain and that sorrow opened up to Jesus, offered to the Lord, is probably the most potent prayer of intercession that you can offer for your daughter. Regarding, you know, do you help her move in? I think the argument could be made that that would be a direct assisting in a situation that is you already know is is objectively immoral and let me just clarify uh, it's not objectively immoral because they're under the same roof it's objectively immoral because you know that you as you've already explained you know they've rejected the church's teaching and they're going to be engaging in intercourse so let me let me rewind and maybe I'm jumping to conclusions here but I don't think so based on what you said but maybe it could the very opportunity to say to your daughter i can't directly help you move in with your fiance if your plan in moving in is to live as if you're already husband and wife which means you're sharing a bed and you're engaging in the marital act right if that's what's going on then you can't i don't think you can that would i don't i couldn't advise you To assist in that. Yeah,
1: I really agree with you there.
0: Yeah. But the occasion is now, uh, has presented itself or will present itself if your daughter comes to you and says, can you help us move in? For you to explain or at least put on the table, what do you intend? Is this purely an economic decision? Meaning, are you going to have separate rooms before you get married? Let me just rewind and say, I wouldn't recommend that either, but it's not objectively immoral for two unmarried people to be in the same house, so long as they're not behaving as if they were married people. Um, The church recognizes this. The church states this in as much. here's I'll give you an example. Take a couple who are in an invalid marriage and they have children. Uh, The church does not demand that they move out from the same house. But the church does call them not to live as if they're husband and wife. Uh, In other words, they can't engage in the behaviors that are fitting to married people, namely the marital act uh, and sharing a bed. So in those situations, the church acknowledges very clearly it's not objectively immoral for two people who aren't married to live under the same roof. Do I recommend that? Do I encourage that? No, because it poses its own whole realm of problems. But if you could ascertain that your daughter's intention is not to engage in sex under the same roof with her fiancé, but merely to live in that house in a different room and we're not going to have sex until marriage, you could facilitate that move because you're not endorsing anything immoral. Again, there may be very good reasons to say, They shouldn't live together, but it's not objectively immoral. That's my point there. So, dear parent, uh, wow. Uh, Yeah, that is a a dilemma. Others might make the argument, I'll just throw this out there for people's consideration, and I, I give some level of credence to this, that there are situations in which, so long as you make your position clear, which it seems you already have, you could maybe help move in um, in order to maintain the relationship. That wouldn't be my advice, but I'm just putting it out there and saying there are people who would make that argument, and there's something to it, but I don't know. I don't find it compelling.
1: Yeah, I it's we are getting to that age of adult children and difficult questions about um, just how do we... How do we how does our relationship change? Yeah, with they? adult children? Yeah, yeah, so it's not that we have this situation, but it's still we can relate to being yeah. at that stage of life. And it's not obvious always what the answer should be. The reason I piped in and said, "I agree with you when you said that earlier in answering the question is just because that was what impacted my heart. I think, in part because, this daughter already lives far away. So there's already a physical distance where, hey, ask someone else to help you move. Like, yeah, there yeah. would be such an added effort to go to yeah, yeah. make a point to go and help with the move that I think it kind of just lends itself to saying, I'm, I'm not doing that. That's
0: a good point, Wendy. The very fact that it would be that much of added effort to go out of town yeah. adds to the weight of saying Not a good idea. Mm -hmm. I, I would recommend all of
1: these things that are this parent's instinct are probably good. Don't help with the move. Don't go stay with them. And since you already have that respect where in your home they're not sharing a bedroom, I think it all just remains consistent. And that's a beautiful witness that they will hopefully process and make sense of at some point. That consistency and that goodness. And I just want to also say this, that we don't always know all the reasons that people are doing something. And the the, um, patron said, you know, that the church wedding is for the sake of a backdrop since they've rejected church teachings. Obviously, we don't know the full story of what their state of faith is, both the daughter and the fiancé. But I do think as parents, we can rejoice that they would want to yes, be married yes. in the church.
0: Even if it's even if it really is that motive for a nice picture, there's something there. There's something good. There's there. something there that can be affirmed. Yeah. There is there is.
1: Yeah, and to trust the Lord to keep working on yeah. them. Just yeah. keep just keep praying. Lord, keep working on them. May, may if they're getting married in a church, they're gonna hear the beautiful prayers yep. of the church. And let me tell you, when people don't believe what the church teaches about marriage, if their are ears are even partway open open during a Catholic wedding, they are mm-hmm. going to be hearing profound truths Amen. in what is just written into the prayers. And that is a good thing for them to hear at the start of their marriage. So I want to just encourage this parent that that is something you can continually be praying that that would penetrate their hearts.
0: And I'll, I'll hold this out. Uh, the book, Good News About Sex and Marriage, I wrote with Primarily skeptical, engaged couples who are already living together in mind. It's not only for that kind of person, but it really is for that kind of person. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage you to, if the door opens, and it seems like you'll have an opportunity when you have to address this, could you possibly say, could I invite you to read this book together? Mm-hmm. Uh, just so you know, this, this book will get, I promise you, they have not they have not heard this explanation
1: hmm. of
0: the church's teaching, and I think it really could open their eyes. That's a great point. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Our next question is from a listener named Michael. Hi, Michael. I'm 18 years old, and I struggled with a porn addiction from age 11 to 13. Because of this, I've struggled with intrusive thoughts and deep self-loathing. Mm because I feel like my stupid decision as a child has left me permanently scarred. Even though I'm receiving medical help with my intrusive thoughts, one thing that I don't know how to deal with is my hatred of my own sexuality. Feels like God gave me something that he says is good, yet has only ever led me to pain and suffering. And since I'm nowhere near being able to get married, it feels like I'm cursed to spend many more years suffering from lust, and loneliness. How am I supposed to deal with my fallen and scarred sexuality with all its good and bad desires in a practical way that won't leave me empty and hating myself and God for having such a disordered body and mind?
0: Mm. Wow, Michael. Wow, brother. Thank you for your honesty. I feel like you're opening your heart to us, and whenever a human heart is opened up, man, what a what a treasure uh, what an honor I, and I mean that I mean that uh, so I, I just want to reverence where you are brother in all the pain uh, you're really in a in a place of agony uh, you're in what the the church would call the prayer of agony mm. and here's here's the good news uh, Teresa of Avila, this is kind of a paraphrase of what she says but it gets to the essence of what she was saying the Lord Teaches us courage in the prayer of agony. Get this, because we need even more courage to endure the prayer of ecstasy. Mm. Michael, as I I lift you up in prayer, just right now, as I'm saying that, I'm holding you in my heart. I'm trying to open my heart to the Lord. I'm trying to, to listen to what He might be saying to speak some word of encouragement to you. And what I'm seeing as I lift you in prayer. As I see, you use that expression, permanently scarred. Guess what? Jesus is permanently scarred by what he endured on the cross. And I'm just going to make this immediately personal for you, Michael. What Jesus endured on the cross was your disordered reality that led you to that pornography, that sinful orientation that you've probably heard me talk about the inverted rocket engines, right? God gave us sexual desire to be like the power of a rocket that has the ability to launch us to the stars, right? But with original sin, our rocket engines got inverted. Going to pornography with our sexual desires is a prime example of inverted rocket engine syndrome, right? And it does scar us. You are right about that. It does scar us. Christ bore already on the cross those inverted rocket engines, the sin of your own inverted rocket engines. He bore them. And guess what? He came out the other side in a glorified body and the scars are not erased. The scars are glorified. You know what this means, Michael? It means your scars are glorified because Christ's scars are your scars. That's the truth of the matter. Christ's scars are your scars. Your scars are, you're experiencing your scars right now on the painful side, on the side of agony. But what you're doing by opening your heart Even in asking this question, it's really, uh, you're opening your heart, really, not just to Wendy and me, but to the Lord. And I I invite you, Michael, to open your agony, open that cry of the heart, which is really a why, 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 Lord, why did this happen to me? Why, Lord, did you give me all these desires if they were only going to get me in trouble in the first place? Why, Lord, am I a man? Why did you give me all these desires? Why is pornography so easily accessible that I'd fall so easily? Why, Lord, was I exposed to pornography when I was 11 years old? Why, Lord, do I now have to deal with these scars for the rest of my life? Why, 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 why? That's the prayer of agony right there. And your why is united with Christ's why in his prayer of agony. Why? Why, oh God, have you abandoned me? Why, oh God, am I going through this? Why, oh God, do I have to suffer this? Why, oh God, why? That why is a sacred why. How do I know? Because Christ prayed it, and everything Christ did was sacred. Michael, your why, your agony, your prayer of agony, which you are immersed in right now, is a sacred cry of your heart. Open it to Jesus. Jesus is already part of it. But do that consciously in a time of quiet. Open that why. Maybe write a letter to Jesus and say why. Get all the whys you have out. Get them out. Get them out. In that prayer of agony that you're going through, the Lord is going to use to teach you courage to endure the prayer of ecstasy. And the Passover will be as your scars, which are in some way permanent, But they're permanent, not with a destiny of just causing you pain for the rest of your life. They're permanent in the sense that Christ is permanently scarred, but his scars are now glorified. They cause him no more agony. They are now shining with glory. Your scars, too, my dear brother, will shine with glory. Mm. And when the time is right, as the time is right, as you learn to listen to the Lord, as you learn to let the Lord touch your agony... As you allow the Lord to touch those scars which are causing you this agony, he will take you on a journey, untwisting all of those pornographic images. Because what is pornography? It is a diabolic mockery of a glorious heavenly reality. It's a hellish mockery of a heavenly reality. As you journey more with Jesus and let him touch those scars... He will untwist those diseased images and show you in your heart the glory you have yearned for the whole time. That's the journey, brother. I invite you to consider taking TOB1. Uh, come study with us. Um, maybe maybe consider becoming a patron and take the retreat that I did for the patrons with Dr. Bob Schutz or the retreat that I did with Andrew Comiskey and his team Uh, Both of these treats are examples of entering into deeper sexual healing, and if money is in the way, you just send us a message, and I'll find a way to get you those retreats. Even if you can't pay the uh, $10 fee a month to be part of our community, we'll find a way to get you these resources, brother.
1: I I think that's very powerful. I think you're just really speaking from experience. That is such a, a treasure to have, to know, and to have suffering united with the Lord and the increase of faith rather than decrease because of that union with the Lord. And and just it, what you're touching on too is just redemption. What does it mean in my story, in Michael's story, in your story to be redeemed by the Lord? And I, um, I just wanted to add, in addition to what you said about the retreats, I was thinking also of two other things. One was um, freedom coaching. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Which you might want to just say a word about. Absolutely, yeah.
0: Uh, freedom coaching. Uh, friends of mine have started this and run it and are part of it. Um, Steve Picorni and Steve Motel are two very fine coaches who, their whole purpose of freedom coaching, is to take you through a, a program of detoxing mm-hmm. from porn and and Michael brought this up there's a deep self-loathing yeah. that is almost inevitably and I think we can say safely is inevitably part of of the pornography problem is a self-loathing uh, they they know they have found a way of walking people into and through this redemption and really, a deep healing of that self-loathing attitude. So, I couldn't encourage you to, to look into that anymore. Uh, Freedom coaching—we'll have the link in the in the show notes.
1: And the other thing I want to say, and I don't want to say this to scare Michael or any other listener, but I I think we are. It is a gift to be aware that the evil one is real, yep. and that he's after us. And and it's scary. We don't like to know that, but it. We'd, it's better to know than not yes, to know. Yes. And I do think in Michael's story, I just picked up on a few little things, loathing, hatred, curse, that just kind of said to me like the this, the ways that the evil one is kind yep. of hanging on yep, there. Yep. He was having a heyday with yep. Michael when he was right at that age when he should have been able to be coming into a, a manly body in a way that corresponded to a manly heart and the evil one was saying no and and acting against that process that grace would have you know brought in Michael and i feel like even though and it's a thing to give thanks for so much that you're not Michael still in that yes behavior yes, but, but i can just see kind of this hanging on of some of the effects or even presence of something that is that hater of your soul and of God's purpose for your life Michael that that is a spiritual reality that does need spiritual remedy so we can be freed from you know demonic forces even just by going to confession all the better if you go to confession with a priest who's aware of some of that reality, can pray over you and with you specifically for freedom from that. But I, I, I want to make you aware of it because I, I just feel like it's, it's something that we can miss sometimes when we are just living through it because the evil one wants us to miss yep. it. He doesn't want us to notice him there.
0: Thanks be to God, Christ came into the world to undo the work of the enemy. And Jesus knows thoroughly, Michael, the work of the enemy in your life, and he has a perfect plan to undo it. Jesus, we ask you, take Michael step by step through your plan to undo the work of the enemy in his life. Open the doors that are meant to be open for him to walk through. Bring the right spiritual direction. Bring the right therapy. Bring the right people who can love him where he is and help him journey, accompany him in this healing. We place this prayer in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, where the full glory of femininity is revealed through the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. We tuck you right into that, the folds of Mary's womb there, Michael, and we ask that right there you would be purified and formed into the, the man you are meant to be. Amen.
1: Amen. Our next question is from Christine. Hi, Christine. My father has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's this year, and I haven't accepted it very well. Mm. I know that many people find it easier to feel God's presence during times of suffering, but what I feel is not being heard by him.
0: Mm.
1: I look at my father here, and I don't recognize him. It seems the same with my father in heaven. Mm. I don't know how to find him. What does our faith teach us about mental diseases? How can you be sure that the person is still in there when his body doesn't even seem to reveal his soul anymore? In a way, it feels like a death.
0: Bless you, dear sister. What I'm most struck by as I hear your question, Christine, is the parallel in your experience with your earthly father and your heavenly father. And I want to say... Initially, I want to say there's something fitting there, because that's what our, in God's plan, our earthly father is meant to be a sign of the heavenly father. Where that gets tangled up and mixed up and confused, not just for you, Christine, but for all of us, is that our earthly fathers are fallen, so none of our earthly fathers are a perfect image of the heavenly father. And not only because of their own sin, but because of the sin of the fallen world and the consequences of living in a fallen world. The image of the father gets obscured in our earthly fathers because of all of these things. Your father is experiencing Alzheimer's disease and all the disfigurement uh, mentally and physically that comes from it because of the fallen world we live in. And that obscures the true face of the Father. And so, I I wanted to say, first of all, there's something fitting, but now I want to say we need to go in the other direction, that the way we come to understand fatherhood is not by measuring God the Father after our earthly fathers, because if we do that, inevitably we will project onto God the Father elements of this fallen world, which are not appropriate to project onto God. We all do this. I do it all the time myself. In fact, so much of my interior journey as an adult Catholic taking his faith seriously, so much of my adult journey in, relation, in my relationship with God the Father has been the Heavenly Father showing me ways. This just came up in my prayer last week showing me ways in which I project onto him patterns and and realities of fatherhood that I learned from my own earthly, broken, fallen father. And I'm going in the wrong direction. I shouldn't measure the heavenly father based on my experience of my earthly father. Rather, I should measure my earthly father based on my experience of the heavenly father. And how do I have an authentic relationship with the heavenly father? Jesus. As Jesus says, those who have seen me have seen the Father. Mm. Philip says in the gospel, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long and you don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm. What does it mean to see Christ? It means to see him in the whole scope of his life, his conception in the womb of Mary which is a revelation of the eternal fatherhood of God through the body of Mary, through his childhood, through the hidden years, through his public ministry, through uh, his passion, death, and resurrection. And when we realize this is a picture of the Father, what we realize is the Father loves us so much that he sent his Son to reveal his own heart And his own heart is a heart that has the capacity and the desire and the power to bear in itself all of our sorrows, all of our sufferings, the whole way unto death. The whole of Alzheimer's disease and all of its disfigurements and all of its sorrows and all of its agonies have already been born in the heart of the Father through the passion, death, and resurrection of Jesus and because of the resurrection of Jesus, those horrors of Alzheimer's have already been transformed into glory. This is very much related to what we were saying earlier about scars and scars being glorified in Jesus. It's a mystery, I I, I can only bow in reverence to the sorrow, the agony, the pain, the questions the real day-to-day sadness, uh, the, what feels like already a death, you said, in losing your father, and the very understandable way we project that onto God the Father. With reverence for all of that, what you're enduring, may I invite you, Christine, to say, Jesus, show me the face of the Father so that I can see the face of my earthly father and all that he's suffering. In light of the loving face of my Heavenly Father, revealed through you, Jesus. Mm. I know those can sound just like religious words. If my words are kind of going out there and bouncing off your heart, Christine, I understand that. Uh, All we have in this format through a podcast is words. Uh, My prayer for you, Christine, is that my words will convey the meaning I intend And we'll take you more deeply into the Word, made flesh, to reveal the love of the Father.
1: I just want to share one thing. Um, Earlier this year, I read two books about the family of uh, and the parents of St. Therese, the little flower. And some people will know, but many probably don't, that Therese's mother died when she was only four years old. And uh, when she was 15, she entered the Carmelite convent, and very shortly after that, her father developed a mental disease, as Christine did ask that, you know, what does our faith teach us about mental diseases, and was confused and in danger himself, and for a time, some of her sisters were able to take care of him at home, and eventually he lived in a, like, somewhat like an insane asylum. Not that he was insane, but he needed that kind of care. And he is a canonized saint. So I just think that I wanted to mention that to Christine because I think his prayers Mm. could be a great help to her and her family, but especially to her father. If you would invoke... Louis Martin mm, is his mm. name, to pray for your father, having lived through what his daughters called his agony. You know, that was his passion. They called that their father's passion in the sense of comparing to Christ's yes. passion. Because he had been a very vibrant and distinctive personality, so so much Known and loved, and this was just such a descent that oh. they witnessed in his life. And I just feel like he could relate to what your father's going through and be praying for him and give you a certain consolation to know that there, this is a man on the other side Oof. who understands what's going on and can pray for him.
0: Louis Martin, please, please pray for Christine's father. Yes. That's powerful, really powerful. And it reminds me of the whole Christian journey is one of descent before it is ascent. Mm. Uh, And there is a real descent happening here. But the promise is that descent leads to ascent up into the very heights of God. Louis Martin, pray for Christine's father. I'm reminded here, Wendy, that the reason you read those books is because we're going to France.
1: It's right. That's why I read them. Mm -hmm.
0: And guess what? I forgot to mention this. I think there's still one cabin left Mm. at this point on our cruise. Okay. Who's it for?
1: Who's it going to be? Who's it going to (laughs) be?
0: It might be for you and your spouse, or it might be for you and your best friend, or it might be for you and your son or daughter. Think about it. Pray about it. Check out the link in the show notes. One cabin left. Maybe that's you. Bless you, everybody. You are a gift.
1: Become what you are.
0: Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.